Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're with us here. This is the seventh week of our series called Unspoken Things. And we're glad you're joining us live here at the beautiful Mill Street House in uh, downtown Old Town Louisville. And if you're joining somewhere else around the world, we're glad that you've taken the time to be part of our podcast. And um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today, Luke chapter 7. And as we've been going along in our study here on Unspoken Things... Unspoken Things is really our way of looking at how the culture of that day and the culture of our day and our experience of that affects how we read and understand these ancient stories of Scripture, right? And we said from the beginning that there are two overarching principles that are going to guide our discussion. So every week we remind ourselves, what are these? And hopefully by now, week seven... Right? We hope as teachers, like week seven, we've kind of got a handle on this. The two overarching things, somebody give me one of them. One of them is what? Generalizations are always wrong, but often helpful. All right, so generalizations are always wrong, but they're generally also or usually helpful, right? What do we mean by that? Somebody explain. What do we mean by that guiding principle? They can't possibly explain all the nuances, but they give you at least a, a roadmap. Right. We can't, everyone's different, every situation's different, not every single story in scripture falls into these neat categories. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it did? We could just be like that. But it's not like that, so it's helpful, but just to recognize that we don't really know for sure what's happening, but we're just using what we know about generalizations to help kind of be a roadmap, all right? That's, that's one of the two. The second one, someone share with that. The second one is? Structures are... Usually the subtext, or I'm sorry, the unspoken. So say it again. Um, something is unspoken. It's the the most important things. You got it now, right? Are unspoken. Yeah. So the most important things in a culture often, or we might even say usually, go unsaid. All right, and that's where we've been looking. Right, we've been taking a look at some stories that we. Um, have, may have been familiar with in the first testament today we're in the Luke, in the second testament in Luke's gospel chapter 7 and they're again because they are unspoken we may have to do a little bit of digging right and a couple of the threads that we've looked at some of these unspoken threads that we've looked at is the, that of kinship right kinship this idea that blood is thicker than water right another one somebody else name another one of the threads that we've looked at in the last seven weeks anybody Brokerage. So we've looked at brokerage, the idea that you generally have someone, especially if there's a power structure and there's a difference between power and weakness, right? You have someone go and speak on your behalf. That's brokerage. Anybody have the last one? Anybody? Covenants. I'm sorry? Covenants. Yeah, this idea of well, uh, covenant breaking, these reciprocal relationships, right? That once you enter into it, they may be unspoken. They may not even be written down, Right. But patronage is the language we use there that says, hey, you, these things are um, expected of you. All right? So in today's text, we're probably going to see some portion of all of those because we've been kind of working our way there. And in Luke 7, by way of introduction, after calling the disciples, Jesus moves through Galilee and he's been healing the sick. 
often by touching the afflicted person. So as he travels and heals, he also teaches on topics, on topics like fasting and his authority over the Sabbath. He's been preaching on loving your enemies and the significance of obedience for a disciple. And the setting now for this story is the Jewish town of Capernaum. It's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of in the north central part of uh, the Promised Land. And some of the other disciples, along with Simon, call that place home. It's like a fishing village, right? There. So it is a comfortable place, a place that Jesus has spent some time, and a place that his disciples are also familiar and comfortable with. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to break the story into a couple of parts. So Luke chapter 7. Let's go ahead and read the first five verses, and then we'll kind of dig a little bit into that. So it's Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And please, someone with the Common English Bible, that's what uh, we use here at the table just so that everybody's on the same page, right? 7, 1 to 5. Anybody? After Jesus finished presenting all his words among the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion had a servant who was very important to him, but the servant was ill and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to, to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly pleaded with him. He deserves to have you do this for him, they said. He loves our people, and he built our synagogue for us. All right, so this centurion, and by the way, the centurion means that he is an officer in charge of 100 men, 100 men, yeah, perfect answer today, people, um, and that day, 100 men, so thank you for that, that's good, it's a good reminder, yes, 100 people, um, I wrote down men, wow, thank you, elders, for yes, very um, and so he had authority over 100 men, and this was an occupying army, right, we recognize this, right, so this is an occupying army, so how do the people in an occupied country usually feel about the occupying army? Negative, and why? Negatively. <laughs> right? So certainly not positive. What else? Fearful. Uh, afraid, right? That you might step the wrong way or do something that would get you in trouble, right? Okay. Afraid or fearful. Good. What else? Resentful. Uh, resentful. That's possible, right? This is our land. This was promised to us, right? And here you are. Um, we have to answer to you. What else? Any other things that might uh, might crop up? Feelings related to that? There were several that? rounds of open rebellion. Yeah, some people are rebel would just want to rebel against it, right? So what did you say? They conversely, they may take advantage of the uh, power structure that they can join in on and be a part of and benefit from. I get the idea of these people that were sent, the, the Jewish leaders were sent by the centurion, probably didn't uh, like Jesus so much as they uh, wanted to please the centurion because, you know, they want to get in his good graces. Yeah, so it's a, some might see it as an opportunity, right, mm -hmm. for personal or clan or family advancement, right? Mm -hmm. All of those are, are good possibilities, right? Is and, there a business component to it? How so? Well, is our... Would any of these Jewish folks have some sort of business that would serve the occupying forces? Well, I'm certainly, yeah, that would make complete sense, right? These these people have to but be... But get paid, I mean... Right, I mean, they have to be fed, they have to be billeted, you know, there's all kinds of ways, you know, um, that uh, that would definitely be a possibility, right? So there's, 
the point being there's lots of different right perspectives it wouldn't be a uniform hatred right but certainly no one would sit there and say there's a whole lot of love being lost for this group of people right and I think Luke picks this particular story and inserts it here for that very reason okay so what do we know or what can we ascertain about this centurion maybe that are some unspoken things, things about him that we can assume from the text um, by reading like the unspoken things. What do we what do we know about him, or what do we think we know about him? Let's start there. He's got to have a little bit of compassion because he's going out of his way to help a servant not die. So he he comes across as a compassionate person. This word for servant, somebody close to him, right? So he has compassion. That's a that's a fair observation, right? Who cares about your servant, right? Except for he built the, if he built the synagogue, he's a useful servant. All right. So uh, yes, and the servant, the implication being the money to build this or this synagogue or help build this synagogue came from this centurion. So we might say he is generous or. Maybe wealthy. I was going to say he he must have been viewed as a person of status because he did send someone in his place uh, to Jesus. Right. So there's certainly we talk about these in these stories. It's the first thing we need to kind of observe is what's the power structure happening here in the story. And in this case, at least in the opening, we have this idea that the centurion is a person of significant influence in Capernaum. He's been known to at least contribute significantly to the building. It's probably like the synagogue might be named in his honor. No, is that only a Presbyterian? <laughs> <laughs> so just as an aside, like my first church, we had, uh, when we built our new building, each one of the Sunday school classes or the classrooms uh, was available for naming rights. And it was great because you could raise a whole lot of money, right, by naming a room after someone. And so you would say, it was easy, then you could direct, you could go over to the, you know, whatever person's name, room, right? We're going to meet in that room, or that room, that room, and then that money would always go into, um, anyway, that's something else. Anyway, <laughs> um, we don't do that at the table. We don't have any rooms to name. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, we know that he, he probably has some sense of humility, too, because he's asking for help. All right, so we get that sense, right? I'm not so sure he's not a believer. It could be. Because the way it's, you know, he loves our people, and he built a synagogue, so any sending, you know, someone to Jesus, so there's got to be some belief in there. Yeah, you would think that um, by... Just by way that it says that, that he loved the nation, right? That's a weird kind of a statement for a Roman centurion, right? To be, you know, he loved the nation. He, he loves the place that he is. And arguably, he's heard something about Jesus. He's seen, remember the setting that Luke gives us, is that all of these miracles have been taking place, right? And exactly like Mike said, the centurion slave is desperately ill. He wants Jesus' help. But notice, he doesn't go to Jesus directly, Right? Here's that brokerage mediator thing that is part of a collective culture, right? That's so different for us. Most of us would be like, if it's my kid, and by the way, that word for slave and child is interchangeable. So it could be a child or it could be a slave, either one of them. It's someone that's very close to him, right? If we had a child, 
who is ill, we're not sending anybody else, are we? We're going ourselves, right? The, the, the problem with it, I mean, it could have been his child, but the thing is, in the Roman military, they were not allowed to be married until they got out of the service, which means if he had a child and he was a military officer, he, he was doing a little more he was, than just military. <laughs> yes, yeah, he was doing yeah some things maybe he shouldn't have been doing. So I think that's maybe why they translated as servant, knowing that scenario, right? It's possible he could have you know been had a child, but it's also likely that someone in his rank would have a servant or servants, right, to take care of him. So either one of those fits, right? So um, it does seem to us, at least from Luke's perspective, that. The centurion considers the Jewish elders to be good mediators. Now, what's our initial reaction to that? So the Jewish elders, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, when we hear that he thinks they are good mediators, what's our first response, having studied the scriptures for many years? and and adversaries. Does he not yeah. know they're feuding? Yeah. yeah, so we immediately we're like, that seems like a strange choice, right? Like, Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are not usually on the same page. So it does seem strange. So what are some of the things that we've learned over the last few weeks that would help us understand what makes these religious leaders, yeah. these elders, potentially good mediators in this situation, because that's what we have to deal with, right? This unique situation. The whole principle of generality from somebody from another country who's now over power over this and loves the country, oh, they're all this way, so yeah, we'll send some of their leaders to talk to the guy. They're all part of the same group in his mind. All right, so that, that makes complete sense, yes, that there's that that sense in which that someone new in a, in a or someone not native to an area, right, would send someone, okay, good. They have an investment, and the centurions continued financial investment in their culture. <laughs> well, how dare you go to such a place? <laughs> no, but yeah, so there is, right? There's a connection here in that they're very clearly stating, right, that this guy is really helpful to us. Right? He's helped us build a synagogue. A synagogue is the, the local place of worship for those people who can't get all the way to the temple, right? So, yeah, certainly they think, okay, well, there's, they, they're connected to this man through his work with the synagogue. What else? Why are they good, from his perspective, the centurion's perspective, good potential mediators. Well, he's going through the official channels of communication in theory. As a centurion, he would work with the elders would be the people he'd have the main contact with. And so for him, it'd be just natural. Hey, I normally work with these guys, the elders, to connect with other folks. Then they should be able to hook me up with connecting with Jesus. Though he might not be as apparent <laughs> on the little political idiosyncrasies that happen between the elders and, you know, Jesus. Yeah, so you have this idea, this sense that he knows Jesus, right? That he knows about Jesus. He knows that the, the religious leaders have a connection with Jesus. He has a connection with them. That's a perfect scenario for someone, right, to, to be that mediator, connected to Jesus, connected to this centurion, and 
um, a good status. You would say a good status in the community. The religious leaders are of good status in the community, right? We may not like all the things that they've done, but in that community, they're respected leaders, right? So what reasons, then, did the Jewish elders give Jesus as to why he needed to go and heal the slave? He loves our people and built our sin. Interesting, right? So he loves our people, and he built our synagogues. Do you think that they really cared about this servant? Or is it something else here? Oh, no. Keep the centurion happy. Sorry? Keep the centurion happy. All right, so you're, you're suspicious of their motivation for having Jesus go. They want Jesus to go to keep the, to keep the centurion happy. Okay. Would they even have a choice not to go? Who? The, the Jewish leaders. If the centurion wanted them to go, wouldn't it be more a, as an order than a request? Uh, why would he want them to go? You mean to go to Jesus? Yes. Oh. Uh, would the Jewish leaders have a choice in the matter of going or not going to Jesus? Politically speaking, they wouldn't, I would argue, but... Yeah, that's a good question because of his, again, when you look at the power authority structure, so there's certainly a sense of that when you're asked to do something by someone who's in that kind of authority, you probably don't want to get sideways, for sure. Um, but there's... He sent them. He didn't ask them. He sent them. Right. Consider... So it like an authority. Yes. Yeah, consider right. there's other options there, though. He could have sent one of his, someone in his actual military rank just to go straight to Jesus. Right. And he didn't go through the military, down a level, and then straight across, he went to into the Jewish idea. So that I'm wondering if there's a whole other context there that he's probably been around long enough and was paying attention to how the structure of the Jewish culture worked, that he was like, all right, this is how we do things in this occupied area. And militarily, he was really smart because he did things to keep uprising right. to a minimum. Yeah, we you know, don't. Hey, let's build the a synagogue. Right. Let's, you know, if we make them happy and instead of oppressing them, they might be a lot easier. You know, honey better than a stick or whatever. Right. We don't need to send a policeman when we can send a social worker. But it seems also now like he recognized the differences in authority. Like he had military <laughs> and and structural authority. Yeah. But he went to the religious authority to ask it for a religious favor. I feel like he could bring Jesus before him and say, heal my servant. But if Jesus' heart isn't for the servant versus requesting through a religious authority, like he recognized. And, and wasn't it another centurion that asked Jesus, heal my, my person? They were coming. And he said, no, you don't have to come. You have the authority to heal him. Just, this is coming. Yes. It's coming. Yeah. We're going to get to it. Same story. Oh, Just same further story. on in the story. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So here's what I think, though. Um, I think also, if we take a look at some of the unspoken things in these first five verses, we're supposed to notice, I think Luke wants us to notice, because the early and first readers would have noticed, I think, that um, the elders actually do a really bad job of mediating. But you have to read the subtext to kind of get this idea. So take a look at what are some of the unspoken things that you see here. Remember, I said we've got to start with understanding the power dynamic being that's on display. So what are some of the unspoken things that you think of? And 
that you can see here that might support that position that Luke wants to see. This isn't exactly the way mediation should be working. Anybody? Isn't there supposed to be, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you? Right, so we have a reciprocal relationship, right? Where um, the one who is the patron, right, is responsible for caring and provision and protection. So in this storyline, our natural viewpoint is to go to the centurion as the patron, right? And then Jesus... Being the one being called, he's the client who then comes to reciprocate, right, to the client. <laughs> but Luke wants us to see that that's really an upside-down, backwards way of thinking about Jesus and the power structure here. Right? Do you understand that? But Luke is kind of like, it's like, do you, do you see these guys? They think that Jesus is somehow subservient to this centurion, and therefore, now look at their request. When they give the reasons why Jesus should go, it shows you exactly what they think the power structure is. Because he deserves. He deserves. He deserves. That's the language of, okay, now he's the patron, he's done this for us, he deserves for you to come, right, and heal his son, because he loves us, and, and he built our synagogue. So like Jesus, you're beholding to this man, and therefore in our culture, this is the reciprocal relationship that you're supposed to, um, and it should compel them. This is what they think. These, client, these, um, these mediators think that should compel Jesus to answer them, right? If Jesus is willing to help, then they naturally expected that Jesus would go to his house because clients show up when they're summoned by the patron. That's what happens. But Luke's readers know and we know that Jesus would not consider himself a client to this man. <laughs> right? At all. Right? So we shouldn't expect Jesus to go. That's what Luke wants us to understand. Right? Jesus is clearly not subservient to this man. So he's certainly not going to go. He sets us up for that. Right? Who is this man to summon Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, to come and speak with him? Right? So Luke sets us up to expect that Jesus is going to refuse. So let's read in now 6, 7, verses 6 through 10. Jesus went with them. He had almost reached the house when the centurion sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't be bothered. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. In fact, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I'm also a man appointed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. Does it. When Jesus heard these words, he was impressed with the centurion. He turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, even in Israel, I haven't found faith like this. When the centurion's friends returned to his house, they found the servant restored to health. So Luke lets this story unfold in unexpected ways. In fact, you could argue that nothing in the story unfolds as you would expect, right? 
So in the setup to the story, the centurion says to the elders, she goes to the elders and says, I need Jesus to come and heal this servant. But we just read 6 through 10, what is the response of the centurion when he actually finds out that Jesus is on his way? He's He doesn't deserve it. He certainly feels like he says that, right? I don't deserve this. Now, do you think he thought he deserved it before? And now suddenly, you know, what's changed? What's changed in his mind? What do you think's happened here? I think the centurion originally asked the elders to say, hey, can you go ask Jesus to heal my servant? And then that maybe be it. And he's like, well, hold it, hold it. I didn't mean you meant... You don't have to. You didn't have to come. Up. You just, just had to say it. Right. You know, save your time. Just say it, and it'll work. But I don't think that even the elders, you know, understood what the centurion's faith was. Yeah. So certainly, the centurion is used to, as he says in the story, right? If I tell someone to go and do something, they're going to do it, right? I don't have to worry about. I don't have to be the one that goes to do it. I have people to do that. All you have to do is tell them I need it. Jesus could just. That's pretty amazing, right? His faith, right? Jesus could just heal him from anywhere. He didn't have to come. So what's happening? What's the dynamic here that's happening that Luke's turned on his head? By the way, this is something that Luke does a lot, right? Luke loves to um, this plot reversal. This is thing where you're expecting one thing, and then he flips it around. So if, if the Jewish leaders did a, job, a really bad job of mediating, believing that the centurion was the patron and that Jesus was the client. What does the centurion do? How does Luke describe what the centurion does? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. So he flips the script, right? And he immediately recognizes that, no, I'm not the patron here. I'm what? The vassal. The servant. I'm the vassal or I'm the client, right? And so when he talks about it, he's going with his humility. He's recognizing that Jesus is the one with the authority. He's the one with the power in this situation. And so his response then is what you would do in that culture, right? Is you would step back and you'd go, I'm unworthy of even having you here. You're, you're so much further up than me, right? then the only way we should be having any contact here is through a mediator. And I don't have that, so don't come to my house at all. Also, Just say the words. Go ahead. Although, She's pointing at me. Although, not pointing at <laughs> no, that's it. Although it says, I am also a man appointed under authority. So to me, I mean, it's not, he was putting himself under, but, but also equal to in the sense that he was in the authority of the government side, and, and he was placing Jesus at the authority of the religious healing side, because he... Basically saying, I can say go, 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 and so can you in your realm. So I didn't, I didn't see him as putting himself under, per se. Okay, so what word or words in the text there might indicate that he is actually doing that? There's a word. Also. Okay. I'm also a man appointed. How does he address Jesus? Lord. Lord. Yeah, that word Kyrie, Lord, right? That is the language of I'm putting myself... Oh, beneath you. Not equal. Arguably, as I understand, in this unique situation, this religious situation, I might argue that it might, by the fact of, of how he describes Jesus and the way Jesus responds to his faith, that it's deeper than just simple recognition that, you know, in your lane, you're greater here, and in my lane, I'm greater here. The way he responded seems to be that he literally is recognizing this power dynamic. 
Peter? Also, the, the, the fact that at first he sent representatives, which was sort of a political move, but, but the second time he sent his friends. Right, that's brokerage. So, and which allowed him to be completely transparent. And so it's not a, it's a whole relationship uh, thing that's, that's uh, more true and honest and intimate that he would never do with representatives of, of on the political side. That is correct. Yeah, and that's a really great way of thinking about it because the combination of using the title of Lord and the fact that he sends a mediator is a recognition, recognition that the person I'm dealing with is in a person is here and I'm here. That's a typical brokerage relationship. So he's recognizing the authority of Jesus. And so when Jesus responds to him, right, the elders tell Jesus the centurion is worthy or deserving of having his servant healed. The centurion, on the other hand, sends a message to Jesus that he's not even worthy to have him enter the house. What's the implication there? He's turning on his head, like Luke says, the elders say he's worthy of this because of this and this. His response is, I'm not worthy at all. Why? Why does he feel that he is unworthy? I think you recognize, personally, when I read this <laughs> and the way it, it reads, to me it's like he understands from the get-go who Jesus is, but he has that moment of pride you know, an authority, and then as Jesus approaches and he thinks about it and reflects on it, he suddenly goes, oh boy, you know, I've just... I've just summoned Jesus. ...overstepped, <laughs> you know, you know, I know who Jesus is. I mean, that's just the way I feel. I feel like the centurion is really a believer from the get-go. And that he just is like a lot of us, sometimes we do things and then we reflect on it and go, oh, wow, that was wrong. I mean, that's... So sidebar, Dave. Mm -hmm. So where would the centurion get his faith from? So um, it's an interesting idea, Phil, that, that we, would uh, we would presume that because of his actions that he had faith. Um, one of the interesting things about the way, and we'll kind of wrap this up next week in this, is that um, the way that scripture lays this out for us is that grace is given to us, and then our response to that grace is Pistis' faith. So our faith is a response to something that we have received from, from God. The, uh, the challenge I have with believing that he knew or had faith beforehand, it, I just struggle with that idea because um, it is possible. It's certainly possible, but I get the sense that um, he's so used to having things done for him. He's so used to being able to call and have something done. To him, it makes complete sense, right, for him to go to somebody who can, you know, now that he's in this desperate situation that he can do nothing about, he recognizes the only chance I really have of making this happen is to lower myself down, to take my humble pill, right? And ask someone who's demonstrated the ability to do healing. And so I'm going to send somebody on my behalf to show him or to, to, to basically convey to him, I'm not worthy of this, but I'm still asking. And so that, go ahead. It was deep enough because of Jesus' response. I tell you, even in Israel, I haven't found faith like this. And which, what do you think he's describing 
So faith is always a response to something that we've received, right? So what is it, what is Jesus commending him for? What has he received at this point? What's he recipro- what is Jesus reciprocating to in this case? Blind faith. <laughs> that means he's acknowledging that Christ is Lord. That's exact. That's the one. That's the piece right here that we need to zoom in on. So he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, whether he did before or not, but in this moment, he recognizes Kyrie, Lord, right? You are the one in this situation. I have no authority. I have no power. I have no control. But I'm sending my meteor. I'm sending someone on my behalf to plead on my, my case. I'm unworthy, and we could argue he's unworthy in his mind because he's not a, he's not a Jew, Jesus, at this point, is still being sent only to the Jews, right? So he has this idea of a, of a national identity for Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy of this relationship. Go ahead. Uh, going back to verse 8, where he tells Jesus through his friends, I'm also a man appointed under authority. And he describes how he can just order soldiers to come and go. To me, something revealed to him before Jesus got there that that Jesus is also under the authority of some power that allows Jesus to, to perform this healing. And I'm thinking that he's recognizing that Jesus is a spiritual authority under the power of God. And, um, because the way he describes the way he is with his soldiers. And he's saying, Jesus, you can just say this is gone and it's gone. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Because remember, Luke loves to turn these things on their head. So the Jewish leaders, the Jewish, those who are in authority in, Ju- in Judaism as a whole did not believe that Jesus was Lord and that he had the power of God working behind him. But this centurion, this one who is outside of the, the nations, he recognizes both the authority of Jesus and where that authority comes from. That's a great observation. Is the Lord that he uses in that form, is it the common... Lord that anyone would use to describe someone above you, or is it Lord God? Yeah, so in, in Greek, Kyrie is a Greek is a much more precise language than than the language of the first testament, predominantly Hebrew. So Kyrie could be used in any one of those scenarios. It is used to speak of Christ in his lordship, right? It's the same word, but it's also used to recognize just regular levels of authority. You just have to take it in the context of where it's being used to recognize whether it's related to God as Jesus as Lord, as we would have seen Yahweh, for instance, in, in the First Testament Hebrew. Um, certainly, the, the, the centurion definitely attributes more authority to Jesus and where he gets that authority from than the Jewish religious, the elders of Judaism. That's what Luke wants us to see. David, do you think I'm going too far into thinking that like there isn't there aren't these parallel tracks in the mind of the centurion of spiritual versus the political authority he's under where he's under Caesar, that he's he's making a spiritual plus political proclamation that that Jesus is basically Caesar, that he is he is the declared king. Um well, and that's what's interesting is, is the fact that he's declaring the Lord somebody possibly greater than, you know, his allegiance to Rome. 
Um, That's an interesting. I, I I don't think it, that it's taking it too far to read that. Um, it's a dangerous statement on the part of the centurion um, to make that kind of statement. You know that that Jesus has this kind of authority, this kind of power, because it puts him at odds with the Caesar of the day, right? Who believes that they are God's representative on earth. So um, maybe that that's just one more you know one more piece to the puzzle of why Jesus is so amazed at his response, right? It, I mean, think about it. What does it take to amaze the Son of God? <laughs> I mean, just stop there and think for a moment. I mean, so he's done something that's so far out, so maybe that's even more support to this idea that he went as far as to say, he's above every authority on this earth, including my Roman authority, and therefore, right, I recognize that, and I am, you know, recognizing his Lord, and I'm asking, right, I'm asking a mediator on my behalf for this Lord to come and heal my son. He doesn't even have to come to the house. That's power. I mean, because I was thinking about Herod, because Herod clearly saw Jesus as a political threat. Yes. Not just a spiritual threat. He was a political threat. Well, correct, because all of their power, the, the Herodian power, was all centralized in um, how they could keep the people in Rome happy. Keep the rebellions down, keep the tax money flowing, and Jesus is definitely a challenge. He's going to potentially up to, you know, upturn all of that with his teachings and what he's been doing at this point, right? He's terrified. The Herodians are terrified, right, that Jesus is going to do just that. Right? Exactly. You start to say. Is it fair to assume that as the authority in this land, he has exhausted all natural options to bring healing to his servant and has reached the point where the only solution is a supernatural one? And so when he hears of somebody supernaturally healing, he is suddenly open to the presence and, and power of God in a way that he wouldn't have been before. Like that he probably summoned every doctor, every healer, nothing worked, but then he hears about Jesus and saying, well, what power does he have that we don't? I, I suppose that's possible, again. Um, we don't know, we can't really know and climb into his brain and know what he was thinking. However... To me, um, the fact that Jesus responds with such amazement, it would be normal and natural to respond by do everything else and last minute go to Jesus. That's not too amazing. At least the way I'm, I'm reading the text, right? What's amazing to me is the implication that maybe none of that happened and he went directly to Jesus because he, he saw exactly, as you were saying, Bill, he recognized exactly who Jesus was. And that he was Lord. And so rather than go all those other routes, but I'm just speculating in the same way. I just, it seems to me that if you're going to be, if you're going to amaze Jesus, you don't do that last ditch. It's not the last ditch thing. It's like turning there first. Am I, is that, we is that crazy? We remember that this is a Gentile Correct. also. Um, and, and since he built the synagogue, I can't help but think that he also would have attended, at least be, been able to get as far as a Gentile would be able to in a synagogue. So he would be hearing Jesus uh, on on the on teaching days, you know, the Sabbath coming in and, and teaching and, and all that kind of stuff, along with hearing the Torah and. I, I think he just received a revelation. It, it clicked. Yeah. 
I think it's fair. You know, I almost see, I don't know, and, and I can see it back and forth, but it's almost like he's asking forgiveness to me. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm someone that's used to being in authority, and I screwed up, and I know you can do this. You know, you can heal this person. So I'm, I don't know, I just see, the more I read it, the more I see this guy who's made a mistake, and he realizes it. I, and I think that's fair because because the change from verse 3 from his request in verse 3 to what we see in verses 6 and 7 something's obviously changed he's recognized that the power structure that he thought was in place i.e. he's the patron and he can call a client to come and respond somewhere between verse 3 and verses 6 and 7 he recognized that no I have this all wrong and oh by the way so do the religious leaders this is Kyrie this is Lord, I'm not the patron. I'm the client. Yeah. Right? He sent verses. I'm not even worthy to have you come to right. And he sends his he sends his people. His yeah. that's a, that's another example, right? Fine. So he sends his representatives out to interrupt Jesus. No, no, don't don't come to me just because I you know I asked. I was wrong in verse three. Right? He you sent, don't have to. He sent interesting word though. He sent friends. He didn't send army. And if he didn't send, I mean, it sounded more personal and not, again, another showing of um, non-authority movement. And yes, agreed. And the best meteors, as we said last week, and I gave you that opening story about Uganda, about the car accidents, like this usage of friend is part of this language of, of brokerage. My friend, my really good friend, right? And... I listen to these people talk to me all the time, and they're they're mediating on my behalf, they're brokering on my event, and I'm like, I met you like two minutes ago, <laughs> and you're like my best friend, right? My friend, because that's part of the language, right? Sending that again, a recognition. So we say, all right. So what is a story like this? You know, what are we supposed to take from a story like this, right? And I, I just want us to recognize that um, this this foundational uh, patronage language, right? Um, that in the ancient culture, either party could initiate this patron-client relationship. The problem is, the challenge is, that God turns it on its head. Because like the Bible says, that while we were yet sinners, right, Christ dies for us. He chooses, right, he chooses to be in this kind of relationship with us. So he gives us grace, right, that's charis. C-H-A-R-I-S, just like my daughter's name. He gives us grace. We respond with faith. And when we put those two things together, grace and faith, those signify that is a patronage relationship. That's the language of our salvation. We receive the gift of salvation and we respond by trusting in it. We receive the gift, we respond by trusting in it. That's Ephesians 2. By grace we have been saved through faith, right? Not from ourselves, it is a gift from God. Romans 5.8, we didn't deserve it, right? God is the most generous of all patrons, and he, Ephesians 1, lavishes all of these gifts upon us. And if we choose to accept his benefaction, then we become part of his family. That's Ephesians 2.9. You see where all this is going? Paul builds on all of this language when he starts writing in the epistles and the book of Romans and Ephesians and other places when he explains what salvation is like. The good news. 
the good news of salvation. He explains it in such a way that it's in this language of brokerage. God initiates the relationship. We simply choose whether or not we want to accept that gift and join his family. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.